This is God's word. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all, are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. That's our scripture passage for this evening. Um, and as I mentioned, this is the sort of second in our series through the book of Philippians, and, and it's entitled The Pursuit of Joy. Because one thing is clear when you read through the entire letter of Philippians, and it won't take you that long if you want to do it, but if you read through the entire letter, it's pretty clear that Paul is experiencing joy. He is overjoyed. He calls the church to rejoice. It's known as the letter of joy. But the interesting thing, um, if you've read Philippians before, you'll know this, the interesting thing is that Paul writes this not from a library or inside some seminary, but he writes it from prison. So there he is, bound, imprisoned. We'll learn more about that in the weeks to come. But yet at the same time, this is the letter that he writes, and it's just full of joy. And so this whole series through the book of Philippians, the letter he wrote to the Philippian church, is called The Pursuit of Joy, because I want to understand, me personally, where this joy comes from. How is it that someone could be sat in prison, not sure whether he's going to live or die, and yet be so filled with joy that you would almost not know that was the context that he's writing in. How is it that this unassailable, unmistakable joy is flowing out of the apostle? And more so, not just how is it possible for him, but how is it possible for us? Is it possible for us to attain something like the joy that we see in the book of Philippians? And so this series, we could, we could, that's why it's called the, the pursuit of joy. We're going to try and pursue it. I'm going to try and pursue it. I want more joy. I want joy full stop. And this is one of the best places in the whole Bible to turn on the subject, this understanding of joy. And so as we go through over the next few weeks, we will realize time and time again, this letter provides us with such deep and rich resources for the pursuit of joy. That hopefully, by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit, as we come to the end of our series, we will all be filled with joy. And the good thing is that it's not one single mechanism that will get us to joy. And in fact, what I want to show you every week that we, we go through it 
And so there are multiple means, multiple ways to attain or to, be- to borrow down into joy. If you imagine, uh, you know, there's gold in them, there are hills. There's, there's uh, I don't know, places in America or whatever where there's gold buried away deep in the rock. <clears throat> You're not going to drill one hole in to get the gold. You're going to drill multiple holes in to the, the hillside to get the treasure. Likewise, a ship, a great ship, a cargo ship, sailing across the Atlantic, if it gets into difficulties, it will drop anchor. But these days, no ship has one anchor. It will drop multiple anchors in order to try and scrape along the ground, you know, the, the, the base of the ocean, in parts anyway, to, to root itself in so that it doesn't get turned over by the, the storms and the waves. Or think of a tree. No tree has one root, ultimately. It has multiple roots that it sinks into the ground in order to suck up the, the nutrition, in order for it to flourish and grow. So whether it's, <clears throat> you know, holes into a hill, anchors on a ship, roots on a tree, when we go through the book of Philippians, there are multiple means or, or multiple uh, pathways that Paul brings us to the point of discovering joy. And so we're going to look at one of those pathways tonight, and I hope that as we go through the series, there'll be many of them. And we can all benefit from his teaching in this uh, pursuit of joy. So what I want to show you tonight is, is three things <coughs> from this text we just read. Number one, I want to show you the inevitability of God's work in his people. Number two, I want to show you the results of God's work in his people. And number three, I want to show you the anticipation of God's work in his people, right? Inevitability, the results, the anticipation. And if you understand this, if you, if, you, if you get what Paul is saying, that will be one way that you can mine down deep and receive joy. Look down at verse six. We'll think number one about the inevitability of God's work in his people. Number six, verse six, which I believe is the controlling verse for this entire passage. Famous verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, says Paul. I am certain, I am convinced, I am convicted that he who began a good work will bring you through, will finish it. That good work that Paul is referring to here it's not good works in general, like nice things, you know, uh, that does come into it. The good work that he is talking about specifically is the work of God in salvation. It is the work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good work that he's talking about. If you're familiar at all with the, the book of Acts, uh, the, 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 the uh, narrative of the early days of the early church... <clears throat> After Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and what happened thereafter um, by the Holy Spirit, we get to Acts chapter 16 and we see the planting of the church of Philippi. And we see what Paul means when God, who began a good work in the first believers. We see a woman in Acts chapter 16, a woman called Lydia, wasn't actually from Philippi, she was from another, another city. She was a businesswoman. Woman. She moved to Philippi to uh, further her business plans. She was a dealer in, in fine cloth and purple linen, expensive stuff in the day. 
And uh, it says she was God-fearing. She had some sort of religious uh, understanding of God, and yet she wasn't uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. Most likely she'd never heard of him before. And it says there, uh, in Acts chapter 16, that they uh, were gathered at the, at the side of the river. And it says there that the Lord, that is God, opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. That is the gospel message, the message of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, came to earth, lived the perfect life, died a death on the cross, raised on the third day. <coughs> and on the basis of that, repent and believe. That's the gospel message that Paul would have put forth, something like that. And so God opened her heart and she received the gospel message. She put faith in Christ and she was baptized on the same day. That's the good work that Paul is talking about here. He who began a good work in you will carry it on. Likewise, the jailer, later on in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas um, got into trouble with the authorities in that city. They put them into jail, and this jailer was to look after them. And it says there around midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying in the middle of the night, and a great earthquake came, and the, the, the prison that they were in broke apart in some form or other. Uh, the walls came down in some form. They could have left along with the other prisoners, but they all stayed. And the jailer, a man hardened by war, no doubt, a working man, a hard-working man, came to the apostles and said to them, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we see that the jailer was then baptized at once. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. This is the kind of good work that Paul is talking about. That God has started in verse 6 of our passage. He who began a good work in you will carry it on. This is kind of one of the ways... Yeah, this, is what, this is what we mean, sorry, when we say good work. But the good news of all this stuff here is that he who started that stuff, that is God, will continue. He always starts, he always finishes what he starts. And according to Paul, we'll see this as we go on, that is a source of joy. Knowing that God has started something, will complete it, that is a source of joy. And according to the Bible, it's not a case of, of simply coming to faith in Jesus, praying a prayer, <coughs> being converted, saved, whatever you want to call it. And then you're left to get on with it. And, and it's just down to you to, to do hard graft, to do good works, and, and somehow you know, one day you'll meet Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that God starts your life with him, God continues your life with him, and God will complete your life with him on the day of Jesus Christ. And that is great news. And we'll see in a few weeks' time, <clears throat> um, in chapter 3, of what that looks like. Let me just give you a spoiler alert right here. But in the end of chapter 3, <clears throat> Paul says, Our citizenship, this is the church, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That is what we're aiming for. That's what's going to happen to us. And that is the thing that God is going to complete in us who believe. This is good news because it means that if you're anything like me, there is hope for you if you stall in your Christian life. There is hope for you if you mess up and sin in your Christian life. Because according to this verse here, you cannot stop what God has started. And in fact, one 
real way to rob yourself of joy is to spend too long looking in the mirror. Too long examining yourself and saying, I can't do this, I'm not that, this is something I don't have. But because of the inevitability of God's work in his people, you are not yet what you one day will be. God will always finish what he starts, and if he started a good work in you, he will carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus. This is a source of great joy. As I said, this is a a controlling verse for the rest of the passage. The inevitability of God's work in his people. What God starts, he will finish. But Paul doesn't just give the church a bit of of doctrine or a, a concept. There is a practical reason why he says this. And then that brings us to our second point, the results of God's work in his people. Paul can say, <clears throat> he who began a good work in you will bring it, to the day, bring it to completion. He can say that because he looks at the church in Philippi and he sees the evidence of that good work taking place in the church. Look down at verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God <coughs> in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, lots of alls there, making my prayer with joy. This isn't just some sort of sterile doctrinal thesis that he's sending through. This is a letter. Yes, it's full of joy, but it's full of love as well. You can just, as you go through, you can sense the love and the affection that Paul has for that particular church. And he prays for them with joy. Why is that? Well, look at verse 5. Because, he says, the reason I feel like this towards you is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, the church have entered into the gospel with Paul. That's another way of saying they have joined him in gospel work, in gospel service. Yes, they believed on that first day when God opened their hearts to accept what Christ has done appeals to, applies to them. Yes, they've done that. But there is results that come from that. There is fruit that grows within the church. And Paul can see that. That's the source of his... That's one of the reasons why he's joyful. I mentioned to you a few moments ago about Lydia, the businesswoman, and the jailer. We never know his name. After Lydia accepted Christ and was baptized, she said to Paul and Silas and the the others in the group, she urged us, saying, this is from... Chapter 16, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And even at the end of that chapter, we see that the first church meeting was held in her house. Immediately, she was wanting to demonstrate her faith, to live it out by opening her home, sharing her resources. Likewise, the jailer. It says that when he accepted Christ by faith, He washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. They'd previously been beaten. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along, rejoiced, there it is, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. See, when Paul talks about God beginning a good work in them, it's not just a theory. He can see it taking 
place. He can see it in the the results of what's happening in the church. He can see expressions of generosity. He can see expressions of kindness. He can see gospel service taking place. And that has continued on and on through the years. We don't know how many years later Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, but probably something like 20, 30, 40 years later. Not just five minutes anyway is the point I'm getting at. Many decades later, Paul is writing with one, one of the purposes is to thank the church for the gift that they sent to him. And we'll see this again in a few, a few weeks' time. You see, it appears that this church of Philippi, 20, 30, 40 years later, are determined to partner with Paul in the gospel. They want to supply his needs. You know, he came, he shared the gospel with them. People were saved. They, 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 they heard the good news of Jesus. They were transformed by him. But then Paul left them and went to other cities and, and did the same thing again. And the church wanted to partner with him. They wanted to supply his needs. We see at the end of the letter, even when other churches failed to get supplied through to him, this church, above all others, succeeded in giving support, probably financial support, to Paul. they went the extra mile that was how deep their partnership their fellowship in the gospel was with Paul we can see the results of God's work in his people but there's more look down at verse 7 it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers of with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You're partakers of grace. We share together in the grace of God, he's saying. And that has, has worked its way out in my imprisonment. I'm here because of the gospel, in prison, in chains. And yet you partner with me in that, he says to the church. You partner with me in the defense of the gospel, that is standing up and defending the truth of the gospel. And you, you partner with me in the confirmation of the gospel with signs and perhaps you know, miracles and, and yet signs of generosity and love. All of that, he says, you people, you church, partner with me in that. They weren't ashamed to be still connected with Paul, you see, when he was put in prison. Many other Christians were. They spoke badly of him when he went into prison. If you're so good, Paul, as, as an apostle, you shouldn't be in prison. You know, if this gospel that you're preaching is so powerful, then how do you end up in prison? That's what some Christians were saying. But not the Philippians. They didn't give up on him even when he was in prison. (coughs) In fact, as we will go on to see in a few weeks, again, this church themselves are suffering opposition of some kind. This church themselves have had to give a defense of the gospel in the marketplace. This church themselves maybe even are threatened by a similar fate of imprisonment or even worse. But they stuck with Paul through thick and thin, whether it's through material support, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through news and fellowship, whether it's through suffering, they have partnered with Paul in the gospel. We can see the results of God's work at the start, and we can see the results of God's work many years later in the same church among the same people. And we today... In, in the church of the 21st century here, in Foundation Church, we can think that unless we are partnering and we are being imprisoned for the gospel and we're doing some of these uh, <clears throat> full-on partnership maneuvers and the big, the big picture stuff, and, unless we're doing that, we're not 
partnering in the gospel. We're not displaying God's works among us. That's how I feel sometimes, anyway. But yet I want to encourage you this evening that it is in these simple acts that we see in Lydia and the jailer right at the beginning, these acts of hospitality, these acts of generosity, they are the results of God's work in them. We think to ourselves, unless we're doing massive sacrificial things, then what we're doing isn't counting. But that's not true. And the scripture here teaches us that. But the interesting thing is that when Paul writes his letter decades after he first planted the church, the pace that was set by the early believers like Lydia and the jailer and their families, the pace that was set by them has taken root so much so that 20, 30, 40 years later, the spirit of gospel generosity in that church has just simply flourished. It has got deeper and richer and truer and more impacting and probably more sacrificial as time has gone on. But it's what they did on the, at the early stage that set the pace. And I want to encourage you again tonight that, that I already see this kind of thing taking place among you in Foundation Church. I already see these acts, these Acts of generosity and kindness already happening. I see you opening your homes to one another. I I see you sharing meals with one another. I see you babysitting for each other's families and for mine too. Thank you for that. I see you giving your money to support the ministry at the church. I see you sitting down to make Mother's Day cards to bless the women, the Chinese women who come to this center. I see you having coffees out with one another. I see you doing these things already. And like the first Philippian believers, our acts of love and generosity and kindness to one another right now will set the pace for years to come. So I want to encourage you that God has already started a good work among you. And I can see it. And so can you. And knowledge of the fact that God has started a good work among us at Foundation Church will bring joy. Because what God has started, chapter 1, verse 6, He will continue. And so we get to encourage one another in this little church with the evidence of God's work among us. The fruit. That's one of the joys of of membership in the local church. Because it's only there that we have this depth and closeness of relationship that we get to speak like this to one another. It's where we can sit down with our brother and sister in Christ and say, I see evidence of God's work in you. And I see growth in this area of your life. And, 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 and you never used to be like this six months ago, and yet I see this in you. And so that's one of the joys of, of local church membership. We get to speak that level and that depth of truth into our lives, into one another's lives. I see fruit. I see growth. So we've seen the inevitability of God's work in his people. We've seen in this passage the the results of God's work in his people and how we're seeing that now, even at this early stage as a church plant. And thirdly, the third point, finally, the anticipation 
of God's work in his people. Verse 6 again. I'm sure of this, <coughs> that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. There's a process that you will go through of improvement, of betterment, <coughs> the biblical word, sanctification, being progressively made holy. Because Paul is saying here to this little church in Philippi, God has already started. And so on the basis of that, you can expect more. You can expect much more. There is joy now because of look at what God is doing. But there is joy plus joy plus joy in the future. Look at what he will do. There is joy in the future. Look down at verse 9. Paul sort of starts this argument you know, in verse 1, verse, one sorry, verse 3 and 4. <coughs> and he's saying, I'm always praying for you people for you when, when I think of you. And so in verse 9, 10, and 11, he, he, he gives the content of that prayer. He lets them know what he's praying for. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Your love may abound. That is, overflow, burst the banks. Not just a trickle, but a trickle, and then a bit more, and then a bit more, and then a deluge. That is what I'm praying for when it comes to your love, says Paul. I want it to grow more and more, richer and richer, with knowledge and discernment. See, according to Paul, Christian love isn't just simply free-flowing, indescript love. Love has a framework. You know, like a, a bowling alley when I was a kid. So I don't know if they have it these days, but if you go out bowling, <coughs> when, I, when I was going to birthday parties and that, you know, you could phone ahead and they would put up these blow-up sausages, you know, in the gullies so that you could pretty much hit a ball down there any which way and it would knock over some pins. These days, I think they have little fancy, you know, electronic ramp things that come out. But in some ways, that's kind of what Paul is talking about. <coughs> Obviously, well, I don't know if they had bowling alleys in those days, but it's this idea <coughs> that love has a, a framework, a set of rails, if you like, to mix metaphors. Knowledge and discernment just keeps love flowing in the right direction. Knowledge is, is that sort of part of not knowing God. It is, it, it, is, it is love that has content. It is love that is uh, shaped and, 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 and focused to a certain thing, a certain person, certain content. A relationship with somebody requires knowledge. So your love may abound more and more with knowledge. He's praying that they will know more and more about God and know God more and more. Knowledge, but also discernment. The other rail, the other rung. Not just knowing God, <coughs> but it's knowing how to use that knowledge. How to discern how to apply it in everyday life. Knowledge and discernment. And that is the path that he's praying their love will overflow along. <coughs> it's not either or. It's 
not knowledge and no discernment. It's not discernment and no knowledge. It's both and. And then in verse 10, he continues with this sort of explosion of all the things he's praying for, for the church. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, the love that he prays will overflow has direction, but it also has a shape. Approving what is excellent, what is good and right and pleasing to God, what is pure, you know, living lives of, of purity, internally pure, in thought and innermost being, externally being blameless, living a life that no one can say, oh, you've come up short here. And then he continues on in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is a lot to be praying for, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff there to be thinking about and the shape and all this kind of thing here. And again, thankfully, uh, some of the issues that Paul raises here will be returning to time and again <coughs> as he unpacks uh, what he's got to say here in the rest of the letter. But in summary, this is what he prays for. And he is anticipating God's work in his people to continue and to get bigger and stronger and deeper and richer. Can you imagine a church that is increasing in its love more and more, that abounds in its knowledge of God and its discernment on how to use that knowledge? A church that is abounding, that is overflowing with the commitment to what is excellent in the eyes of God, what is pure in the eyes of God, what is blameless in the eyes of God. A church that is progressively being filled and filled and filled with the fruits of righteousness. Imagine a church like that. That's what Paul is praying for here. But according to Paul, and this is, this is the thing, according to Paul, that kind of a church is not only possible... It is to be expected because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's not just a vain hope out there somewhere, maybe one day God will bless and maybe one... No, no, no. He anticipates the actuality of God's work in his people. As surely as God has started a good work, so much more surely will he continue it and bring it to completion. And that ain't just getting by. That is overflowing more and more, deeper and deeper, richer and richer. Imagine a church like that. By the way, this is again something we'll come back to in a few weeks' time. I feel like I'm saying that all the time today, but this is really the first of the, the series, I guess. But there is no conflict in Paul's mind between God's work and his own prayer. You know, we can wrongly think that God's work has started, God's work will continue, God's work will finish the job, so therefore what role do we have as people? What is the point in doing anything? Because God's got it all sorted. What is the point in praying? Because God's going to do it anyway. And so we can wrongly think of these two things. I'm saying wrongly. You know, they're clashing together. Don't make sense. Ah, so illogical, reading the Bible. <coughs> but Paul is completely happy with that seeming inconsistency. And again, we'll visit this issue uh, later on in chapter 2. But according to Paul, both things are true. 
God is completely sovereign. He is the, the originator. He is the provider. He is the, the one who saves. He is the one who does the work in them and will bring it to completion. But in his sovereignty, God also chooses to relate to his people, to his children, as a father relates to their child in a way that he is pleased to listen to them and to act upon their prayers in a way that actually makes a difference in the sovereignty of God. Their prayers actually count. He actually listens and he will actually operate on the basis of their prayer. Furthermore, this is sort of applying this kind of connection really. It is because... It is because God is who he is, because he is sovereign, because he is at work and in charge, that prayer is worth it. Because there is no point, if you think about it, praying to a God who is not in control, who is not sovereign, who is not powerful, who is not good. What's the point in praying to a God like that? Nothing. Because he may or may not want to do something, he may, not, may or may not be able to do something. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that Paul is praying to. That's not the God who presents himself through Jesus Christ. It is because God is sovereign and at work and in charge of all things and powerful and loving and effective that we pray to him and we desire to pray so because he is powerful and loving and wants to hear his children. And that is why we get to pray like Paul does in verse 9 through 11. Praying is not a vain hope. It is not wishing on a star. It is not blowing out our birthday cake candles and hoping for the best. But we are praying on the basis of who God is and what he says in, ver- like in, in Bible verses such as chapter 1, verse 6. And so therefore, as a church, we can not only be filled with joy because of what God has started and the, the, the results of that, but we can also look forward to the future with joy anticipation of what God will be doing that is why Paul can pray always in every prayer with joy that is why we can pray with joy we can yearn for what God will do in the future expecting expectantly come before God and pray and ask and we can celebrate when we see signs of God hearing our prayer and working through us, when we see more and more love abounding, when we meet one another and encourage each other on how we're doing and, and, and the signs of God at work, when we are hearing more and more stories about how God, through his Holy Spirit, is changing people's lives, making them more like him, bringing them from death to life. Because that is all part of God working out his purposes in our church. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is a great prayer, by the way, for us to pray for ourselves, for each other, to each other as a church. In fact, when we're done here, after our final song, we're going to pray those verses together. Because it's the same God that we're praying to. It's the same work that he's doing in us that he was doing in the church of Philippi. And therefore, we can expect to see the same things happen in our midst by his grace. So we've seen the inevitability of God's work in his people. Verse one, sorry, verse six of chapter one. We've seen the results of God's work in his people, ranging from those acts of 
kindness and generosity and hospitality, through to partnering in the gospel so much so it might land you in prison. We've seen the results. And thirdly, finally, we've just seen there the anticipation of God's work in the future based on the fact that he has already started. You want more joy in your life? I want more joy in my life. Paul says this is one way to get it. Reflect on verse 6. Reflect on verse 6. This is the first mine shaft to reach the treasure. This is the first root of the oak. This is the first anchor in the ocean. Dig down to the truth of verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Maybe you're here this evening and you don't know Christ. You don't know that you have a personal relationship with him. Maybe you're listening in and, and that is something you want and yet you don't know Jesus. Maybe you want this level of joy that Paul is starting to lay out before us and yet you don't know how to get it. If that is you, if you're like, in some ways, the jailer who comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? We read the next verse to find out. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe that what he did for you, sorry, what he did on the cross, applies to you because you need it. Because you're a sinner just like me and everybody else in this room. And yet because of him, you can have total freedom, forgiveness, your guilt is wiped away. And that is the first step in the pursuit of joy.